Have you heard? Biotech Media is calling 2023 a banner year for ADCs, antibody drug conjugates. So we thought we should also be talking about it. Yes, they have been around for decades, but recent developments have helped shine a light on antibody drug conjugates. ADCs are what matter today on Discovery Matters. My name is Sasha Brahimi. I'm a principal investigator at GSK, and my team works on the development of various therapeutic molecules, such as proteins and oligonucleotides. Antibody drug conjugates are being written about, spoken about, and invested in, in the same way mRNA was discussed during COVID, I think. And this acronym ADC is nearly becoming as common as the ABCs, if I may say so. Maybe not that extreme, but certainly within the industry. So does Sasha have a good reason why the time is now? Over the course of the last century, scientists have figured out really clever strategies to use biochemistry tools to modify the structures of proteins in, in interesting ways to get interesting properties. And I promise that anybody who would be listening to this is familiar with a drug that's been made possible by advances in this sort of, of chemical design. A, a very simple example like uh, site-specific mutagenesis, where you can take a protein that has uh, 100 or 1,000 amino acids and change the identity of one, two, or three of those amino acids, and all of a sudden that protein behaves totally differently in a patient, like exhibiting longer circulation times leading to the need for less frequent dosing. There are currently, at the time of this recording, 13 ADCs approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., And so why are people so interested in these drugs? ADCs take advantage of and combine the best parts of both antibodies and cytotoxic drugs. Antibodies are really good at targeting and binding to specific molecules. Cytotoxic drugs are really good at inducing apoptosis, in other words, cell death. But the cytotoxic drugs are generally hydrophobic, meaning they will enter all cell types, even the healthy ones, so they can kill healthy cells. And that's when you hear things like the cure is worse than the disease. And that is clearly not what we want. When you combine those two elements, an antibody and a cytotoxic drug, you now have a structure where your cytotoxic drug is bound to an antibody, so it can't just enter all cells. The bulky antibody is prohibiting that. What you can do is choose an antibody that recognizes a receptor that's only present on some target cells, say cancer cells, binds to that receptor, gets taken up into the cells, and brings a cytotoxic drug in with it. So that speaks to targeting. So this is really why people are so excited by these class of, of molecules. The advantages here are really clear then, but what are the challenges then with the suitability of the final drug product, whatever it may be, whether you're when you're developing an, an, an ADC? If you go to the literature, you'll find that one of the earliest examples of an ADC was actually reported all, all, more than 50 years ago. We're now at the upslope of realizing the potential of ADCs, and the question becomes, why has it taken so long to get here? And I think it goes to show that with any emerging technology, as important as it is to talk about the advantages, as your question is going to, it's equally important to outline the challenges. And, and one of them is related to structural stability. And many of the drugs that are actually used in ADCs are very hydrophobic molecules. And back in general chemistry, we learned that hydrophobic molecules tend to associate with one another, aggregate, aqueous solution. You can kind of think like oil and water. 
this type of aggregation is actually a very common challenge with ADCs, and it requires optimization of your solution buffer to keep your ADC happy and minimize that aggregation towards increasing ADC solubility. In November, we had really exciting news in the UK about the approval of the first CRISPR-derived therapy by Vertex and CRISPR Therapeutics. And of course, now AbbVie has announced its intention to buy Immunogen. So could Sasha explain the worthiness of pursuing ADCs as well as other novel therapies like CRISPR-derived therapeutics? What I would say to that question is that when you look at CRISPR, when you want to use that in an in vivo setting, so that means in a human, there is a certain set of challenges that arise that are a little bit different than what's been approved, because I believe that's an ex vivo therapy. So in vivo, you need to develop a system where you can actually deliver the CRISPR cargo to a particular cell and within that cell to a particular location. And then once it's in that particular location, it needs to bind to some particular target. And once it binds to that particular target, then you need to wait for therapeutic effect. So my point for bringing that up is that this is the same set of challenges with ADCs. With ADCs, the conjugation of the antibody is at least overcoming one aspect of that where you can actually get to your target cells. And once you get to your target cells, you need to go over the same sort of biological barriers that you do with, with CRISPR-Cas. So it's, it's almost an apples and oranges comparison in terms of the therapeutic modality, but the set of considerations for you to get a therapeutic effect are very similar in both cases. So we like talking about serendipity on this podcast. Has Sasha seen anything in his exploration of ADCs which smacks remotely of serendipity and surprise? <laughs> the most surprising thing to Sasha was the evolution or the progression of how ADCs have come about. Very early examples came out in the 1970s. First set of ADCs were approved and now when we're really at this sort of explosion of, of interest in ADCs, what, what had to be done, and this is you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of people working in distinct areas to overcome challenges related to, let's say, structural stability, uh, related to, I may have an ADC that targets a specific cell, but it may not be perfect, that it may also target other cells that I don't want. How do I overcome challenges related to, if I have an ADC in, in a human, what if it falls apart? And the small molecule, the cytotoxic drug can go anywhere in the body. How do I overcome this issue? So questions like this, and when you see paper after paper, across industry, academia, and government sort of reporting solutions to this. And you see slowly but surely <laughs> the solutions get better and better. And ultimately, you get this into humans. Sasha's paper focused on the significance of using high throughput experimental screens and computational techniques in the development of ADCs. In the pharmaceutical industry, in the context of a drug candidate, developability means how likely is it that a particular drug will have properties that make it amenable to ultimately becoming clinically approved because it's manufacturable, because it's safe, and, and because it's efficacious. And there's many components to consider when one is evaluating the developability of a drug. If a drug is too toxic, it might not be very developable. Uh, if a drug has a structure that falls apart really easily owing to uh, various stresses like high temperature, it may not be very developable. The ultimate goal is to try to take the hundreds of considerations that go into evaluating the developability and either assess them or in cases when you can actually tune them, try to make them better towards uh, improving a drug's prospects of success. As a very basic example, that could mean that you need to study a different doses of a drug where you would balance having a high enough dose to get a therapeutic effect with a, a low enough dose where somebody doesn't want a toxicity. 
And Sasha's paper also looked at the structural stability components. In protein stability, there are two major subcategories, conformational stability and colloidal stability. Conformational stability speaks to uh, the propensity for a protein molecule to fall apart or unfold. Certain things can accelerate that unfolding, high temperatures, low pH, and, and more. When it unfolds, it's no longer functional, which is not desirable. A colloidal stability, on the other hand, speaks to the propensity for a protein molecule to interact or associate with other protein molecules in solution. If it does associate with other proteins, then you can have emergence of protein aggregation, which is also undesirable. The ultimate goal is to optimize both of those stability parameters. And the two major ways of doing that are either one, directly engineering your protein structure, so making modifications to your protein structure, or two, optimizing the formulation that you have your protein in, meaning its liquid environment and those molecules that are in it. This investigation showed that through this sort of rational formulation design, you can take structures that are prone to aggregation and make them much more well-behaved. I'd say that the significance of the work is threefold. For ADCs that are similar to the one we studied in this paper, one could envision that our findings constitute a set of design rules for what formulation conditions can enhance the stability of, of one's ADC. And from a practical standpoint, as your question is going to, this could reduce the time needed for development from the order of months to the order of weeks. I do think it's important to acknowledge, though, that ADCs are a very diverse set of molecules, and small changes to the identity of the antibody or drug can lead to vastly different properties and turn vastly different design rules. The second uh, area of significance for, for our work is that even in cases where you can't just copy and paste your formulation conditions, the experiments and computational workflow that we present to constitute a set of studies one can do for any ADC towards tuning and stability. Uh, the third point of significance is, is more a scientific one to say that it's actually pretty remarkable that such subtle changes in, in formulation can transform structures prone to aggregation uh, into ones with much more favorable properties. And when you kind of put those three points of significance together, you're ultimately taking steps towards enhancing the developability of ADCs and, and doing so on time scales that are speeding things up one or two orders of magnitude from what's currently employed. So there must be applications uh, for the use of ADCs in cancer and many other medical areas where it's difficult to find that kind of treatment. The strong motivation for using ADCs in cancer treatment is clear, right, where you can take cytotoxic drugs and make them more targeted. And there are hundreds of ADCs in development for various indications in oncology. But what I would also say is that you're starting to see more people expanding the scope of diseases to other therapeutic areas outside of cancer. Uh, the field of immunology is one example. So glucocorticoids are a class of steroid hormones that are very commonly used for treating inflammation that's associated with several diseases. And a challenge is that when they're administered systemically, they can elicit various off-target toxicities. So people have, you know, have asked, well, can we conjugate these glucocorticoids, these molecules to antibodies to make their delivery more targeted specifically to immune cells? And what about looking forward in a year's time? What outcome might we expect from Sasha's research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish I knew that too. What you'll find is that you know, a lot of things that we, we showed in this paper are, are things that other people are working on too. The, the use of uh, structurally smaller targeting moieties other than antibodies is, a, is an ongoing area of work. And you'll read about things like nanobodies, and this is motivated by, by several reasons. One of them is that antibodies often suffer from low tissue penetration. 
So if you have a tumor you want to target, antibodies have a difficult time accessing cancer cells in the interior of the tumor. Uh, these are targeting moieties, in some cases, are able to overcome that limitation. You, you'll also read a lot about dual payload ADCs, meaning you have one antibody as a targeting moiety, but it's functionalized with two distinct drug molecules. That's motivated by the fact that cell populations you want to target can be very heterogeneous, say in a tumor, meaning a drug it might work for one tumor cell, but not the other. So using two distinct drugs allows you to start to think about overcoming that challenge. Uh, in the context of stability, which is what we've talked about largely today, people are also working on the use of new linkers that when appended to the drug molecule can increase the drug molecule solubility. That's something that you're doing to reduce hydrophobicity. So those are three areas of research. There are many more, and many more. And, and you, as you can see, companies are very interested in the development of ADC. So the next year, I think there's going to be a, a lot of things that I didn't mention here as well that are, that are going to come to the forefront. So I am Paolo Tarantino. I'm a breast medical oncologist and research fellow at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard Medical School. Um, I'm originally from Italy. I trained in, in Milan and I practice in a phase one unit developing new drugs. And I moved two years ago to Dana-Farber to mostly work in the development of novel antibody drug conjugates for patients with breast cancer. Paolo has an impressive CV, am I right? Yeah, dream career. So what got him into breast cancer oncology? People always lead other people. I would say the connection is mostly cultural, meaning that uh, in Milan, where I trained in oncology, it's actually the place where the first chemotherapies were developed for breast cancer. It's the place where anthracyclines were developed. It's the place where actually we realized that breast cancer could be cured in certain patients with systemic treatments, with the right dose of the right drug. And so I felt that this huge challenge in terms of numbers is extremely prevalent, but also it's an extremely smart disease. We, we figured out after more than a century of studying this disease that whatever you see in the breast, it's not what is actually there. Meaning that since the diagnosis of breast cancer is usually a systemic disease, the cells have already gone somewhere. And so this is why we are moving toward less aggressive local treatments like surgery and radiation treatment. And it's really a big task for the medical oncologist to find the right drugs. And so I felt this, this challenge and my father is an oncologist himself. He, he deals with liver cancer, which is a very different type of cancer. But still, I also felt when I was growing up through, his, uh, through following him at conferences that somehow oncology was a raising field. Once we really did not, not have enough weapons to treat cancers, but suddenly in the last three decades, it really exploded since you started developing biologic treatments beyond only chemotherapies, the field really exploded. And now I think that we're reaching kind of a synthesis, meaning that what we learned with chemotherapies and with biologic treatments, antibodies, are kind of matching together in antibody drug conjugates. This brings us nicely onto the focus of Paolo's work and our discussion today on antibody drug conjugates. So he's using ADCs to target breast cancer. How? 
Although I think one thing that is always important to remember when we talk about antibody drug conjugate is that they are chemotherapy. We are not abandoning chemotherapy. Unfortunately, together with being very effective, they bring with them many side effects that we know very well with chemotherapy. And so it's chemotherapy 2.0. It works better than traditional chemotherapy, but it's still chemotherapy in the good and in the bad. Chemotherapy is great. It helps us to save lives, to, to, to cure many types of cancer. But of course, it has issues. It has toxicities. And now we're making it better. And now I think we are in the phase of fine-tuning antibody drug conjugates. But why then ADCs being increasingly used in oncology and particularly breast cancer? Well, the first ADC approved was in the year 2000 for leukemia. But with breast cancer, we have to focus on solid tumors. And the first ADC for a solid tumor was approved in 2013 for HER2 positive breast cancer, which was quite effective. Many phase three trials started to see if ADCs were better than chemotherapy in different settings in pre-treated metastatic breast cancer, in untreated metastatic breast cancer, and now in early breast cancer. But as Paolo says, ADCs are a type of chemotherapy more active than the chemotherapy we tend to think of. And if not for breast cancer research, we wouldn't even have as much progress toward curing other types of cancer. Other diseases learn from breast cancer. For instance, Sasituzumab govitecan was first approved for breast cancer and then tested in urotelial cancer, so it was approved there. And now it's been tested for lung and other cancers. So usually breast is really, since it's so prevalent, easy to conduct trials, because when you have a disease that is very prevalent, it's easy to find patients to enroll because it's a disease that we studied a lot. And so many, many times, like in the case of ADCs, the innovation arrives first in breast cancer and then it's taken to other diseases. So the way in which ADCs work in oncology is complex, but Paolo has this great description for how chemotherapy and ADCs work together. One key way they work is just that they are guided missiles. So you inject them in the body and they look for their target. For instance, for TDXD is HER2. They find the cells that express HER2, bind to them and only deliver the chemotherapy into these cells. Somebody call it also Trojan horse mechanism. So somehow it exploits this expression of the target to find the cell and deliver the chemotherapy to that cell. The thing is that there is also a second mechanism that is also happening that is just a slow release of chemotherapy. So if you take a chemotherapy and inject it in, in somebody's vein, in a few hours, most of that chemotherapy would have been removed from the body, by the kidneys, by the liver, by many mechanisms that we have. But then what happens if we take the same chemotherapy and we bind it to an antibody? It makes the chemotherapy last much longer in the body. It can slowly release in the body for days. What Paolo called the guided missile mechanism provides increased activity to reach the tumor cell and deliver the chemotherapy. The second mechanism makes it increasingly effective because the slow release, aided by the ADC, acts as a background anti-cancer activity. 
But you can't think about cancer without considering the person, the patient. So what has Paolo learned from patients with breast cancer? Oh my God, I've learned so much from patients in the last decade. The patient may accept to, um, to lose their hair, but maybe cannot accept to have peripheral neuropathy because she, maybe she or he is a pianist and requires to have perfect movement on the fingers, whereas somebody else instead maybe he has a, a figure that is very important and cannot afford to lose hair. And this is why every drug that we use, of course, has got a different side effect profile together with being more or less active. And it's important to discuss the activity data, but also mention the toxicities and, and find the right profile of both, of activity and toxicity for each patient at each time. Because the more drugs we develop, the more drugs are available, the more we can personalize the treatment. When we had only two or three chemotherapies, well, it was just a matter of sequence. First use taxanes and then anthracyclines, platinum, but now it's really much different. I do learn from each patient some aspect of this, and every experience is, is different. Of course, there are huge differences from in the early setting, early breast cancer, where you can think of a curative treatment, and, and this sometimes requires intensive treatment, which, which also leads to a strong uh, bond with, with the patient. But also in the metastatic setting, it's a much longer path. It lasts gladly for, for years, for many years now. And, and this means that, of course, you have to face different challenges along the years. But from each of these challenges, I, I guess, I think we both learn something, the patient and the, and the physician. And it's it, it makes it a beautiful job, a, a complex job full of complexities, both scientifically and emotionally, but a beautiful job. It's always so wonderful to hear from doctors and anyone who works remotely in the healthcare field that everyone generally cares to make a real difference in the world. So Paolo's next steps are what? Well, he's working toward personalized medicine, but to do that, he needs to find one missing piece. The more drugs we have, the more antibody or conjugates we have, the, the more we can personalize treatment. But there is one thing missing to really personalize treatment and it's biomarkers. Biomarkers are just any feature that can allow you to understand which patient is expected to benefit more or less from a certain treatment. And so imagine in, in a few years, we may have 10 different antibody drug conjugates to treat the same disease. And at that point, of course, you can discuss the benefits, the side effects, but you would want also something that tells you which one of these 10 will be more effective. And I want to know it upfront. And to do that, you need biomarkers. You need to look at something either in the blood or in the tumor or in the patient that tells you this patient will likely benefit more from antibody drug conjugates A than antibody drug conjugate B. So for someone as optimistic and as passionate as Paolo, does he think at some point he will put down the books and see it as job done? Until there is at least one patient in the world with cancer, I think there is need for researching about cancer. And since cancer is very intrinsically connected with, with life, with aging, with what we do, with, with what we eat, with everything, I don't think that ending cancer is something that is going to happen very soon. I do hope one day that we're going to get there, but there's a lot of research needed before we get there. 
and I do want to do my part. I'm not sure that that part will ever end. And this is why one problem of doctors, of medicine in general, is that you never stop, you never retire. But I do think that if I can learn something and teach something, because if you cannot do it anymore, you can still like expand your efforts through other people, through new people. And, and so mentoring is just as important as learning and researching. I do think that the pace of advancement is unprecedented. We've never seen so many drugs so rapidly developed and approved. And so if I think of the last decade, a lot has happened. But if I think of the next decade, I think there's going to be many revolutions one after the other. And this makes me really optimistic and kind of happy to be part of this. It truly is the golden age of cancer research. But as Paolo says, we have a ways to go. Right now, all of the antibody drug conjugates approved, and there are eight approved for solid tumors, more than 10 for any cancer, they deliver chemotherapy. They are fancy ways to deliver chemotherapy that works better than chemotherapy. But now we're starting to think, can we deliver something else? And so there are already clinical trials with antibody drug conjugates that instead of delivering chemotherapy to tumor cells, deliver immunotherapies, deliver protein degraders, they deliver radioactive isotopes. And so we, we kind of are trying to export this paradigm, this idea to deliver other things that could further expand the benefit of these drugs. And so the antibody drug conjugates that deliver chemotherapies are the ones that are kind of helping us to treat cancer now, today. But in the future, this is expanding and it's more becoming an idea, a way to, to treat cancer in general. And so this is one of the ways that these developments will expand into something bigger, not only for cancer. There is also some idea to treat other diseases with this targeted way of delivering molecules. And so hopefully the idea in general will be impactful, not only in oncology, but across medicine. On this episode of Discovery Matters, we explored antibody drug conjugates, expert guests, Professor Sasha Ibrahimi and Dr. Paolo Tarantino. ADCs are attractive to researchers due to their ability to target specific cells with both the effectiveness of antibodies and the cytotoxic activity of drugs. ADCs could be tailored to the individual and the potential implications for personalized cancer care would help improve the patient experience. So why don't we now move straight off the bat of that onto our every day is a school day section. I'm going to start yeah. this week. Let's hear it. I have learned something extraordinary, which makes me feel good about where I live. And we've learned that the relationship between green space exposure and the length of your telomeres, which is the very end of your DNA, um, correlates. So if you live in green spaces, your telomeres are longer. And if your telomeres are longer, it appears to show that you may live longer. So there you go. Living around green spaces uh, has been possibly shown as a good predictor of longer lives. I love that. Speaking of green spaces, uh, you and I are both dog owners and dare I Indeed say dog lovers. Are. Can I call you a dog lover yet? No. Yeah, I love a dog. 
Okay. Not all dogs. Okay. So there is this show on Australian TV that is available on YouTube and it's called ABC WTFAQ. So what the FAQ? Mm-hmm. And they explored the question of does your dog love you? Coincidentally, there is an article in New Scientist mm-hmm. that asks the same question. Do you want to guess what Do the answer is? Do dogs feel love? Are we just projecting human emotions onto Scientists our... Scientists say that very thing. Yeah. I still don't... I still believe my dog loves me. I, that's you it. Can, I, listen, we I, can believe I, I anyone lo- loves I, us as long as it makes us I, feel better. That's right. <laughs> so I learned that scientists don't have any proof that do- don't have any proof that dogs love us, but my dog still loves me. I'm sure of it. I'm sure it is. I'm sure <laughs> my dog loves me and not just the food that I give her. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Sure. And the walks and the balls. <laughs> All of that. Yeah. Our producer is Bethany Armit Brewster, editing, mixing, and supervision by Banda Productions, music from Epidemic Sound. My name is Connor McKechnie. I'm Dodie Axelson. Please rate us on Spotify or whichever platform you use, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Discovery Matters. Discovery Matters.